Hello and welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talk to President of CUP Ontario, Fred Hahn, and co-chair of CUPE's Health and Safety Committee, Brittany Nesbitt. If it's the end of April, then it's time for the Workers' Day of Mourning. For 40 years now, workers across the country have stopped and remembered those who lost their lives on the job, and at the same time inspire workers to fight and prevent further tragedies. Commemorations are organized by labor leaders, including our own Guelph and District Labor Council, and it's widely considered a rare opportunity to make a point that only sometimes penetrates our common narrative. Are all workplaces as healthy and safe as they could be? And are they equally safe for everyone? Issues of workplace safety are the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. According to the WSIB Ontario, the number one workplace injury in 2021 and 2022 was sprains and strains. The second, COVID-19. The pandemic really shone a spotlight on occupational health and safety. While some people had the ability to work from their home, a lot of people, many of them termed essential workers, did not. More than three years now since the start of the pandemic, QB Ontario notes that workers are, quote, facing increased pressure to get back to normal while still trying to recover from the pandemic's intense work pace and emotional, physical, and personal demands, unquote. Increasingly, workers have gotten back to normal in one very specific and disappointing way, at least according to the WSIB. There were 255,318 claims in 2021, which is about 2,000 short of the 10-year high in 2019. In other words, right before the start of COVID-19. Now, in the wake of the pandemic, which, despite what you may have heard, is still not technically over, the pressure on workers and the pressure to look out for their health and safety is still immense. More evidence is making it clear that some people might suffer long-term health effects by their COVID-19 infection. Workers who got used to working from home are now under pressure to get back to their in-person job. COVID-19 protection protocols seem to be all but forgotten. Staff pressures are forcing workers to put in more hours and to give up some time off, and increased workloads are making it harder to focus on the so-called little things, like whether the work you're doing is dangerous, or even if you're qualified to do it. In the wake of this rapidly changing workspace, and in advance of this year's Day of Mourning, we're joined by Fred Hahn and Brittany Nesbitt on this week's episode of the Guelph Politicast. We're going to talk about their personal thoughts on this year's Day of Mourning, what health and safety issues they're seeing right now, and the ongoing health and safety impacts from COVID-19. We're also going to talk about where the gaps are in training and oversight, whether workers feel like they're empowered to look out for their own rights, and the difficulties in making sure that workers are protected, given the wide variety of jobs that QP workers do. And finally, we will talk about the role of government in promoting health and safety, making it a priority in contract negotiations, and the concerns about relaxing of child labor laws in some U.S. states right now. So I caught up with Fred Hahn and Brittany Nesbitt earlier this week via Zoom. Okay, so I'm now being joined by Fred Hahn, who is the president of QP Ontario. Good morning, Fred. Good morning. And I'm also being joined by Brittany Nesbitt, who is the co-chair of Health and Safety, and you are uh, the exec of QP Niagara. I have that right? I 
took that last part from my memory. (laughs) That's okay. Yeah. So I'm the third vice president for QP Ontario. And then I'm the recording secretary for my local, which is QP 2977. And that's in Niagara. So you are right. (laughs) Perfect. Um, Well, let's get started with uh, this question. And Brittany, I'll start with you since you're on my screen. Um, as As an organizer, as a member of a union, as an exec member of a union, what do you think about when when april 28th uh, comes up what does the day of mourning mean to you personally as a as a laborer so that's like such a good question to start off with um so as someone who you know i work in a workplace just like everyone else and there are um a lot of uh situations that come up within my workplace that tend to be unsafe um so for day of mourning for me it really just marks the importance of recognizing what safety is for workers and the importance of keeping ourselves safe and um you know we recognize those folks who have unfortunately been injured or lost their lives or uh, have an illness because of the workplace but for me it really just marks the significance that we need to keep fighting we need to keep working and we need to keep recognizing um we really need to to kind of pay attention um to what's going on around us and what is unsafe uh to a worker because i feel like that definition of unsafe uh, has been changing um so it really marks that importance and that reminder to really just be paying attention and to to be uh recognizing the importance of safety as a worker mm-hmm. and and fred what, what does it mean to you every day of morning i'm i'm reminded of our union's role in creating the National Day of Mourning. Uh, in the 80s, in the in 1983, there was a resolution at a QP National Convention that actually called on our union uh, to submit a resolution to the Canadian Labour Congress to designate a day of mourning to recognize in, uh, workers who've lost their lives or who've been injured at work. And that, in fact, uh, you know, got adopted by the Canadian Labour Congress in the mid-80s. It took until 1990 for government to recognize uh, this day. And, and working with the NDP, we were successful in getting uh, the, the federal government to recognize April the 28th. Uh, and that day, of course, coincides with uh, the first day in, in 1914 that the Ontario Workers' Compensation Act was actually created. Um, it's a really important opportunity for us uh, because, uh, you know, uh, every year, we hear about tragic uh, circumstances where workers lose their lives at work. In the last year, we've had a couple of QP members in the province of Ontario who've lost their lives at work, a worker in Sudbury, a municipal worker, uh, and also uh, a worker in Hamilton uh, who supported uh, transit uh, for people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, these are only two examples of far too many workplace uh, accidents that result in a worker dying at work. In fact, the numbers are staggeringly high. And even when you look at what is reported uh, by the WSIB, what we know is that that's a significant under-reporting when you consider that so many workers also suffer from workplace occupational diseases that take years uh, to kind of uh, come to fruition. So it's an important day for us because, you know, as uh, as Mother Jones said at the beginning of the 1900s, we must mourn for the dead, but we got to fight like hell for the living. And mm-hmm. that's as important and rings as true today as it ever did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Brittany, I'll ask you, um, since you're in health and safety, um, what has 
I, I guess you mentioned this kind of in your your last answer too, in terms of how the workplace is changing and how health and safety concerns of the workplace are, are changing. So can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. So when I mentioned that, I, I was thinking of two specific instances. So I was thinking, of course, of how the COVID-19 pandemic had changed the landscape of the workplace. Um, you know, it felt like almost overnight, instantly things were changing. I, I mean, it was overnight. Uh, it was overnight. Things did change and we were all taken aback. None of us really knew what to do. Um, we really weren't sure. So even as the COVID-19 pandemic has e evolved, um, we as workers have evolved, therefore our workplaces and our safety at work has evolved. Um, you know, we're learning so much more about airborne illnesses and um, about how to avoid contracting those airborne illnesses and the importance of N95s, properly fitted N95s. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I personally can speak from experience. I've had to wear them at work, my workplace and, you know, I get fitted for them every two years and all of the things. Um, so that was one uh, aspect of it. But then the other aspect that I kind of think of is how mental health is really taking um, uh, we're really looking at like a larger picture of mental health and how that has changed the landscape too, and workplace mental health and how the workplace can affect your mental health. And that is actually something, <clears throat> pardon me, that should be uh, reported a little bit more. And it, it really, we're learning more about um, what mental health looks like for people and what mental health injuries look like uh, for workers. So those are sort of the two things like when I mentioned that things are changing, uh, that was what I was thinking of uh, mainly. And I feel like they're the, the top two topics that most people have been thinking of, which is not a bad thing. Uh, things definitely need to change um, to to better support workers within environments where their mental health is suffering or you know they're at risk of airborne uh, illnesses. Um, so those are just the two things that I was thinking of. Mm hmm. And Fred, I want to revisit something you said that, you know, talking about underreporting and, and, you know, I think it, for anyone who even just pays moderate attention to the news and, you know, thinking about people dying on the job, you know, when we hear about, you know, somebody who, you know, works in traffic, let's say, and gets hit by a car while they're in the in the course of doing their job. We don't think of that as a workplace injury. We think of that as a car accident. And so I guess from just the advocacy point of view, I guess how difficult is it to talk about workplace injury when I guess we kind of think of all injuries on a on a level playing field uh, as a sort, like an accident's an accident, whether you, you suffered it on a job or not. Well, it, it's kind of shocking that the truth of the matter is that uh, in excess of 2,000 Ontario workers uh, died last year as a result of traumatic incidents and hazardous exposures at work. And yet the, the our Workplace Safety and Insurance Board in Ontario records only 220 of them. Uh, we have a system that, you know, uh, people have to apply uh, and be accepted. There are uh, a huge numbers of appeals and denials. Um, and again, uh, you know, all too often, uh, situations where people have been uh, exposed to carcinogens and develop cancer as a result of an exposure at work aren't recognized as a workplace injury, which it actually 
is. And, you know, as Brittany mentioned, uh, I think now more than ever, people are thinking about mental health injuries. Uh, and uh, all too often, uh, you know, this is a societal issue. People think about mental health as somehow being about the individual. It's about your circumstance, your inability to be resilient, when in fact, if we think about mental health injuries like any other exposure in a workplace, uh, then what we should be thinking about is how do we ensure that employers are actually looking at the workplace, measuring things that that cause mental stress and harm, like excess work. We're seeing this across all of the sectors that our members certainly work in, uh, that workloads are crushing, that increasingly people are working short shifts, uh, doing the job of two and three people. Um, uh, you know, th there's real pressures that come from a lack of paid sick time, uh, you know, as well, uh, that, you know, particularly, you know, this seemed to be something that we ought to have learned the lessons about during a global pandemic, like COVID-19, that there are real reasons why we need workers to be able to have paid sick time, to be able to have flexible work arrangements that allow them to not go to work and potentially expose others. Um, and yet, you know, in the province of Ontario, uh, under the Ford Conservatives, we're actually seeing us going backwards in relation to these issues, a real resistance uh, to acknowledge that these are the things that are needed. And again, a continued underreporting, um, you know, of what's happening at work. And I think that there's a real, there's something really important there because mm. I, I believe uh, that if most people understood that we're talking here about thousands of people losing their lives as a result of what happened in their workplace, that there would be much more urgency uh, uh, you know, from, uh, from our friends and our neighbors to apply pressure on government to ensure that there was enhanced regulation, ensure that there was enhanced funding for the occupational, uh, you know, occupational health and safety measures through the Ministry of Labor. Instead, as I said, we're going backwards mm -hmm. instead of forwards. And it's why, you know, uh, on April the 28th, it's an important opportunity on the day of mourning to remind ourselves that there is much more we could do here to keep people safe at work. Well, on the topic of much more we can do, you know, I, I think we're all aware there are some pretty big labor actions happening right now, and they're all sort of based around, as, as these things usually are, new contracts. And when we're talking about new contracts, we, we hear about pay, we hear about benefits, we hear about work hours. Um, in, in one particular case happening right now, work from home, what we never talk about is safety. Is is that a missing piece? Like, like maybe people who are on strike are aware that safety is a concern for them, but it doesn't really seem to penetrate in the public when that is an issue at the bargaining table. Well, it's incredibly important to also recognize that there's a correlation mm -hmm. between what people make at work, the <laughs> kind of workplaces that our members work in, the more precarious work there is, the lower the wages are, the less likely those workers are to have workplace protections like sick leave. It's a big thing that we're talking about uh, at bargaining tables. Uh, and when people are talking about flexible work arrangements, there is a real safety aspect to that in terms of ensuring that the workplace isn't a petri dish where people are spreading <laughs> illness uh, to one another, right? Um, uh, and so these things are connected, but you're not wrong. Uh, you know, the, the public discussion has focused understandably very much on the pressures of inflation and what that means for workers. It's our job, uh, those of us in our movement, 
health and safety activists, people who care about these issues, to make to connect those dots for all of us, to understand that when workers are fighting to make sure their wages keep pace with inflation, that actually helps on a safety issue. When workers are talking, as we just did recently, we had a group of workers in Niagara who were on strike, not so much about wages, but because there was a staffing crisis and many of them were working 24 or 36 hours in a row because the employers simply didn't have other people to replace them. Uh, Completely unsafe for them and for the people they were providing support to. So absolutely labor issues uh, about collective agreements are connected to safety. It's our job to actually connect those dots for people to help people to understand that when workers fight for better working conditions, when we're fighting for paid sick leave, when we're fighting for flexible work arrangements, when we're making sure that we're talking about staff ratios, that all of these things have a correlation back to the way in which people are able to do their jobs safely in their workplaces. And I would add, I would add too, and this is just a, a sort of a comment on my part. We're kind of constantly modeled, you know, people like Elon Musk who says, well, I sleep on the couch in my office two hours and then get right back to work, which is presented as like, well, that's how you, you're a success versus, you know, having a proper break. Well, if Elon Musk, the big CEO titan of industry can, you know, sleep in the office, so can, so can you, I guess. I just, yeah. like, I can't get over that. I, I can't, I can't, I can't. I, I literally cannot figure that out. Like, I just, that's not even safe or healthy for him. Like, right. and, and like, I'm not going to go and talk about what a CEO decides to do because that is what they decide to do. But like, you really need to take a break and like get a good night's sleep. And, and I think like, just going to like jump on what Fred was mentioning about the workers here in Niagara who are on strike. That was one of their main issues is that like, they couldn't go home and rest and the importance of like rest and you know that's why we have i mean an eight hour work day so it's eight hours of work eight hours of like time to yourself and eight hours of rest i mean like i do i i personally work shift work i do 12 hour shifts but i still have solid amounts of rest and time and and i also wanted to mention something like fred was reminding when he was saying when workers are fighting for health and safety is that health and safety isn't just a workers issue health and safety is an issue for everyone like Mm. full stop and i think it's important to remember that there are things that workers have fought for that have affected the like greater population so i look to the um canadian union of postal workers when they were fighting for paid maternity leave and we in canada have a paid maternity leave because of their fight so it's not just like it's what what workers fight is is actually a fight for everyone Mm-hmm. And it's unfortunate that health and safety uh, doesn't always get a large profile. Uh, unfortunately, um, I definitely think that that profile is like health and safety was at the forefront of everyone's minds during the pandemic. And I, I, I am hoping that we can continue in that way. But we'll, we'll, we're, that's why we just got to keep fighting. Right. No. And, and that's such a great point, too, that um, a lot of things we take for granted um, started as uh, a union demanding it. And uh, at the time, everyone was like, well, that's that's a bridge too far. You know, you want weekends off, you know, (laughs) and then it it becomes the norm. Fifteen dollar minimum wage is another thing, too, uh, for sure. Yeah. So, Brittany, I wanted to direct this to you. Um, How how aware are like the workers you talk to or even just, you know, people in labor in general, you know, aware of their rights to health and safety you know how aware are they that they they do have the right to say no to unsafe work 
and mm-hmm. you know is is that i mean there there's a million and one pressures on any job but i mean just you know do people given the heightened awareness you're talking about feel co- more comfortable about standing up for their health and safety rights now i i think so like i i i'm cautiously optimistic <laughs> so i want to say like when i speak to the health and safety folks on the qp ontario health and safety committee they of course know and they are always talking to workers they're always talking to their members their coworkers about it and informing them of their rights but on like the day-to-day job um uh speaking like personally for myself in in my workplace you know there's there's been an, a bit of a high turnover um and i know that that is not abnormal right now i know that there's there's uh newer workers and uh higher turnover happening that we're seeing and i think that um some people are still afraid to exercise their rights because they're afraid of reprisal which is something that they shouldn't be because that is one of the rights like under OSHA is like the right to refuse work that you believe is unsafe and being free from reprisal for enforcing these. So I think that um, on a regular like workplace with your with your joint health and safety committees, we really need to be working on getting people aware of what their rights are under OSHA and that they are protected. Um, kind of what Fred was mentioning earlier about how we're seeing workplaces where people are more marginalized where those there, there's those higher incidences of workplace injury I feel like we really need to get into all workspaces except including those ones and not only fight for things like better wages safer working conditions you know that sort of thing but we need to be really making sure that folks are informed because on a, a day-to-day basis i i sometimes wonder uh how informed folks are and mm. i think that the way to make members and and uh, workers more informed is to really be engaging with the joint health and safety committees and uplifting the work that the joint health and safety committees are doing. Your health and safety activists are doing um, something that's important to note is that the COVID pandemic really, um, I've, I've mentioned this before, you know, people were really got burnt out from it. Right. Um, so we've seen some turnover with our joint health and safety committees, which is, <clears throat> pardon me, which is wonderful because it gives us an opportunity to to help folks learn um and learn what their rights are and learn what their protections are and and really continue to engage with them so i think that we're at a an opportune time where we can really focus in on the joint health and safety committees and then those health and safety activists going into their workplaces and informing workers so everyone knows what their rights are and fred you're the president of the the whole darn union so it's uh you know you have kind of a higher view and and qp for, for people who you know, know know what QP is, but may not fundamentally understand just what a massive unit is and how much different work it covers. Um, people in the field, people in offices, people in libraries, but people in mechanic shops, and you know, people in hospitals, people in long term care. It, it's, um, you know, I imagine the safety concerns are numerous, but um, like, kind of, what are the commonalities that you know members are coming to you with, no matter sort of where they work. We are, uh, as you mentioned, uh, a big and bold and beautiful union uh, with lots of different work that our members do uh, all throughout the broader public sector. But there are some commonalities. And I think that, you know, picking up on what Brittany said, one of the things that I think not just our union, but that everyone recognized was that even though we've had this established system of occupational health and safety for some years in the province of Ontario, it felt like we were all caught by surprise uh, by the COVID-19 pandemic and even workplaces 
uh, in healthcare and long-term care that uh, would, you know, more regularly deal uh, with infectious disease seem to be caught short here. Mm. Um, and, and for us in our union, it was a real um, wake-up call to make sure that we're doing everything we can, uh, again, as Brittany said, to support our occupational health and safety committees, to support the workers in those committees, to help them to better understand their roles, right? Um, and, and to make sure that people are actually using the Occupational Health and Safety Act the way that it was intended to be used. It's not as it's not really about the workers being opposed with the employers. It's really about how do we jointly agree mm. that we want to work a safe workplace, that we want people to be able to go home at the end of the day whole, uh, you know, as they came to work that day. Uh, that, that that makes sense, not just for workers, it makes sense for employers, it makes sense particularly for our members who serve the public, because, you know, we're dealing with folks in the public providing care in many different instances, right? And so whether, uh, you know, there's whether you're a municipal worker or a healthcare worker, or somebody in social services, somebody who works at a university, all of our members have this commonality of understanding that we need to strengthen our health and safety, um, you know, uh, ways that we operate in our workplaces, make sure that there's really good, effective training for those health and safety committees. Again, something that uh, the provincial government, both uh, under the four conservatives, but in fact, the liberals before them keep weakening provisions uh, mm. around mandatory training, around what that training looks like, about how important it is. And we're seeing the real impacts here. Uh, it's not by, by uh, you know, uh, it's no accident that there are thousands of people who are losing right. their lives. It is because we're not paying attention and properly using a system that is there to make sure that workers can be safe. Our role and responsibility as a union is to support our members to do that. But we also have a role in advocating for the provincial governments and for governments at all levels to recognize how important this is, not just to people's lives, which is incredibly true, but to our overall economy. It makes just good sense to make sure we have safe workplaces where people can actually do their jobs yeah, I was, I was I was just thinking that it should be a good news story to make workplaces safer. Absolutely. And uh, all too often, uh, you know, there are governments like the current one we have in Ontario uh, that sort of propose this as like it's an it's an expense, it's an added regulation, it's more complication, when in fact, none of that is actually true. Any bit of investment made in workplace health and safety actually saves money down the road. Any investment in workers' mental health, in their working standards, in their capacity to do their jobs actually makes the workplace more productive and better for everyone. Uh, that is, and that's been borne out time and again through research. We know this to be true. And so, you know, because we have the day of mourning, because we are, of course, recognizing those we've lost, it also gives us this re, uh, you know, re-energizes us to make sure that we're supporting our members in the workplace, but also advocating at the provincial level to make sure that these changes come to fruition for workers. Brittany, I wanted to ask you, and I wanted to phrase the question this way, um, given sort of the rapidly changing conditions, and that's not just with health and safety, but, you know, hiring you were talking about and turnover, uh, everything that's happening, what, what's the bigger challenge right now? Catching up to where and filling the gaps of, of health and safety policy or, or trying to hold on to those health and safety policies that um, keep 
we, we keep kind of having to, to fight for. <laughs> I think it's just we're trying to juggle and we're trying to do both because both are important because they both impact one another, right? So, you know, if you don't have strong health and safety policies, then you don't have strong, safe workplaces and vice versa. Like, I really think we need to be, we need, to, it, it's very hard to focus on both things, but it's something that I think we really need to work on because again, like I said, if you don't have a strong policy, it's not going to be properly implemented within the workplace, which means then the workplace is not going to be properly safe for the workers who need to learn the policy. It kind of just goes in this circle. Um, and so I think that that's something that we really need to focus on is ensuring that when new workers come into the job that they are properly trained um, and then that these policies are upheld and that they're not watered down. Like what Fred was saying, we are seeing from the Ford government is the watering down of all of these policies. Mm -hmm. um because it's just a big circle it's it's what like that question like what comes first the chicken or the egg it's it's kind of <laughs> they're one in the same right they impact and affect one another incredibly and so and i think that's the importance of having um well-trained uh health and safety reps within workplaces and how we why we really need to invest our time into helping them train and and I, like i'm going to speak on a in a union aspect you know you need to we need to look at who is the health and safety rep and get right into them for the training. You know, we can't keep overloading our presidents of locals, for example, because they are overloaded already. They have a lot going on already. So we need to find a way to really get into the health and safety representatives themselves because we can't keep overloading one person with all of the work because then unfortunately none of the work or very little of it will get done because they themselves are overwhelmed. Um, so we really need to focus in on properly training our joint health and safety committees and the members and and really looking at what supports do they need and how can we help them so that they can go out and be effective within the workplace and uphold those strong not watered down policies and then how they can train the new workers who come in and i wanted to ask this specific question about COVID 19 uh as well Brittany. just we're in this weird place right now where it's still out there and you know what how 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 precariously you feel the danger kind of depends on your own personal um your own personal condition if you're a, like a strong healthy young person maybe you're not worried about covid so much as somebody who has potential comorbidities or has an immuno disorder and i imagine this is a debate that's happening in a lot of different workplaces you know you walk into work and nobody's wearing a mask in the staff room and you're one of those people who has immunocompromised conditions you haven't been able to get your shots mm -hmm. i guess where do from from the labor organizing standpoint like where do you stand in sort of balancing some workers who just want to get back to air quote normal and then other workers who are like no uh, i can't get back to normal because covid is still out there and it might kill me <laughs> yeah it that's like it's it's a hard line especially when we have a government who's like oh it doesn't exist anymore it's not a thing. So it's a really hard, it's really hard for us to figure out how to do that. You know, we have ministries, different ministries saying different things. And and Fred, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm fairly certain of, I think Fred keeps a better pulse on this than I do, but I'm fairly certain like the Ministry of Health just announced that they don't, folks don't need to wear masks in hospitals anymore. Am I correct? I can't remember hundred um, percent. But then like where my workplace is, we're funded under the Ministry of Community and Social Services and we still have to. So we're like, wait a second, like, why do we have one ministry saying one thing where you work in health? Like, how, why are they doing one thing and we are doing another? And so this, like, confusion that's coming from the government who says COVID doesn't exist anymore, but then their ministries are making different decisions across the board, that is not helpful. 
And so we really need to be looking at, I think more, most importantly, we need to be looking at like paid sick time. And, it, and I think we need to be looking at like, if I come in to work and I am not feeling well, I need to leave and go home. Right. However, if we flip that and we look at, well, Brittany is someone who has a precarious, who works at a job that is very precarious. Um, you know, so Brittany can't afford time off because she's not making a good pay because she doesn't have proper, uh, proper, um, hours of work. So she actually, you know, I need to come in and maybe I don't feel so great, but I come in anyways. And then I put someone else at risk because they are immune compromised. So I think we really need to stress the importance of paid sick days, 10 paid sick days, because we also know that, you know, you can come in not feeling so hot and you still might be, you know, you might take a test and you might be negative on that test, but then four hours later, your viral <laughs> viral load changes. Right. And then you're, then you're positive, but you already, your test already told you that you're negative. And now everyone at your workplace is exposed and you may have just exposed someone who is immune compromised or, you know, like I think of myself, I work in a workplace where I work with immune compromised folks and our biggest fear was someone bringing COVID into the workplace accidentally. And, you know, we were all very careful, but it still made its way into our workplace, unfortunately. Luckily for us, our um, the people that I support had their vaccines. So, you know, they were able to fight it off and some were sicker than others, but they all made it through. I know that that is not the case in all workplaces or in in all all places where you're supporting individuals who are immune compromised, of course. But um, going back to it, I really think this is why we need to be um, working hard to get pen 10 paid sick days for all, not just your full-time employees, not just for your part-time employees, not just for your relief employees, 10 paid sick days for everybody. Um, because without those, you're going to keep seeing people coming into work sick. And that is unfortunately the reality of it is people need to pay their bills and inflation is not helping anyone right now, right? We're all feeling the pressures. We're all feeling uncomfortable. We're all trying to figure out how to make ends meet. And so some people might be going into work sick and just because they need to put food on the table for their families. Inflation is a different podcast, but Fred, I'll throw it to you <laughs> to uh, to comment because, you know, the, we talk about the, the push-pull between levels of government, but there's also that push-pull between ministries as well that, you know, getting different messages from um, different parts of the same building. <laughs> the truth of the matter is that there's been an epic failure here from government in relation to this. And it all goes back to the problem of ideology. Often, uh, you know, uh, folks who are opposed to unions or workers' rights will talk about the fact that we're so ideological. But in fact, when we look at what the Ontario government's doing, it's very much ideological. It's mm. very much based on individual. You decide for yourself what makes best sense. This makes no sense when we're all dealing with the same kind of uh, challenge, regardless of the workplace we're in. Uh, studies are now showing uh, that, you know, uh, those who con contract COVID multiple times have much more uh, likelihood to actually uh, have long COVID symptoms. Mm -hmm. The COVID is not just a respiratory disease, but it actually impacts other organs in your body. It impacts our brains. Uh, you know, there are real very real reasons why it's important for us to understand that this is like a biological agent. It's a workplace hazard. And yet the Ontario government has made arguments and resisted through the Ministry of Labour in making any of those recognitions, as have other governments. And it is a chronic failure. 
as we were talking about with mental health, as we were talking about even with other things, people, it's far too easy to say, well, it must have been that person's fault. You made that decision on your own. You're just not resilient. When in fact, all of us are part of a structure and a system. If that system has a problem, then we all have a problem. And the way we deal with these things most effectively is at a system level. And it's why we continue to, uh, to, you know, to do everything we can in relation to occupational health and safety regulations so that we learn from COVID so that those thousands of our neighbors and friends, people we supported, family members who passed away, that their loss is not in vain, that we actually mm. learn from that, that we strengthen our systems at work uh, uh, for all of us in our communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, well said. And if I can just sort of tie things off here, um, and I don't know how m- much you've been keeping an eye on it, Fred, but you know, the things that are happening in the United States right now, the loosening of child labor laws, you know, some kids as young as 14 can now work on slaughterhouses and work in bars after school, uh, depending on what state they live in now. And we know that stuff in the United States tries to trickle its way up here as well. I mean, how, how much are you sweating as a as a labor union leader today? It's actually uh, very sobering and horrifying to see this happen because uh, you know it doesn't take long on Google uh, to see uh, the history of why we have these kind of workplace protections, and it was very much a part uh, of of uh, you know folks like Mother Jones who started this work in, with minors in the states. It was very much uh, the safety issues were there for all workers, but for younger people, they are even more vulnerable. Um, it is going backwards uh, in a way that is completely unacceptable, and we have to be vigilant. We got to do everything we can uh, to prevent that kind of stuff from coming here, and to support those who are fighting in uh, south of the border or in other places uh, against these kind of uh, uh, steps backwards. They weaken labor laws. They make workers less safe, particularly young workers uh, who are uh, every study that has ever been done has demonstrated that younger people are more vulnerable in our workplaces. Uh, Why would we expose people uh, when when we're still in the middle of realizing we got to strengthen workplaces and make them Mm -hmm. better? Mm -hmm. Uh, Brittany, do you have anything you want to add on that? Yeah, I think um, I think something uh, that I was thinking about when I had heard about this, uh, I heard a little bit about it, and I just thought to myself. Uh, and Fred was mentioning, you know, younger workers are more vulnerable, and I think that it's important to recognize that. You know, if I myself, as a 34 year old, I'm exposed to something, um, I I am fully developed at this point in my life. Um, whereas someone who is 14, they have not fully developed yet. So if they're exposed to something. How is that going to impact them as they age and as they become more into the workforce? Because at, at 14, which is in, ridiculous for me to even be saying, you know, they're just starting off in the workplace. And I think it's also something important is like younger workers are definitely more precarious workers. Mm-hmm. So as those workers age and, you know, become older, you know, we'll see them graduating from school. They'll perhaps take on another job you know when i was a work a young worker i had three jobs this is the first time in my life i just quit my second job i finally only have one job and i'm 34. um (laughs) which is crazy (laughs) it's wild um but you know i just i just am always thinking of like how is that going to impact them as they get older 
And then I also think like, how is that going to impact them on their off time? You know, you, when you're when you're 14, you you shouldn't be working. You should be enjoying being a preteen. You are a preteen. You're not mm. even a teenager at that point. You're not even close to being a young adult. You're a teenager. And so you should be enjoying your time as a teenager and you should be enjoying uh, all of the things that life has to offer. You should not be exposed to hazards in the workplace. And again, with with young workers being precarious work, they might, might not even recognize something as a hazard or they may be too nervous to mention it. And then mm. they get hurt on the job as a result. And then that will impact them in a greater way in their as their life goes on. And so that part really like doesn't sit well with me. It really makes me feel uncomfortable. And this is why we need to keep fighting is for these exact same things. You know, it's it's really it, it it's it's really unfortunate that the labor laws are weakening. And I'm really hoping that I'm I know that we will fight like hell here that that does not happen here in Canada um, because we our ultimate goal is to protect workers and keep them safe. Yeah, uh, the most precarious thing I did as a teen, you know, some of those uh, we had a Zeller's uh, at Zeller's a bike rack, and some of those bikes were a little too close to the ceiling for my liking, having to get them down. But <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's my story. I won't bother you with my my dramas. But uh, just to wrap up, uh, how are you going to be spending the twenty eighth? I'll start with Brittany since you're on my screen. So I uh, so here in Niagara, we have a few things going on. Um, so through our labor council, um, there are, um, uh, we're going to be going to different spots throughout the region. So we're going to be making stops at every place within the region, all the different municipalities in the area. And we're going to be doing, um, ceremonies to remember those and to also like reinforce that we're going to continue to fight. Um, so I'll be doing that. I'm starting off at 730 in St. Catharines. Um, <laughs> So it's going to be an early morning, but that's okay. Uh, I am happy to do that. Th th if that is the least that I can do, then that is what I will do. And so, you know, I'm, I'm doing that myself. Um, I'm encouraging others to attend these events with me as well. You know, I'm going through my local, my friends, my family, because like I said, it doesn't just affect like unionized workers. This is something that affects all workers, like across the board. Everybody is a worker. So it affects everybody. Um, and, uh, I know within my workplace, we've worked with our, our employer. Um, and they will be making sure that their uh, flag is half mast. Uh, we try and have them do that every year in recognition. Um, so that is what I personally will be doing. Um, and, you know, I encourage others who maybe are listening to this to find out what is happening. You know, a quick Google for your labor council or your CUPE council or even just your region. Um, they tend to have things going on. If you check out city halls, wherever you are, there's probably something happening there. <laughs> it tends to be a gathering place for folks. Uh, but in Niagara, we actually are starting at, along the canal because we have a lot of people during the building of the canal who unfortunately lost their lives. Mm -hmm. um, and there's also our Skyway Bridge. There's a monument there. So we'll be making our way there as well. So we tend to go to places where we know that workers were injured or unfortunately lost their lives to pay our respects. Mm -hmm. And and Fred, what are your plans? Well, Brittany did such a good job of comprehensively covering this. I mean, of course, our union will uh, has a statement that we're going to put out. We're going to publicize that as broadly as possible, encouraging our locals to do the kind of stuff that that Brittany's talking about doing in Niagara. There are events literally happening everywhere across the province, of course, in Guelph, but in London and Windsor and in Thunder Bay and in Sudbury and in Ottawa and in Cornwall, everywhere across the province, there are events 
uh, in fact, across the country. Um, and as people, you know, gather uh, and spend time mourning those that we've lost, uh, we're going to really encourage people that uh, we need to redouble our efforts. Uh, because while we mourn for those we've lost, we got to fight like hell for the living. Great place to leave it on. So uh, Fred Hahn, Brittany Nisbet, thank you so much for your time today and for your advocacy too. It's uh, much appreciated uh, as this week uh, as any time. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. And once again, that was Fred Hahn and Brittany Nesbitt. The Workers' Day of Mourning is this Friday, April the 28th. The Guelph commemoration hosted by the Guelph and District Labor Council will take place at Goldie Mill Park at 5.30 p.m., with labor historian Bonnie Dirtnell as the special guest speaker. You can learn more about all the various QP campaigns and work actions at their website, qp.on.ca, and one of those campaigns focuses on flight attendants. Did you know that the average flight attendant in Canada works 35 hours every month without compensation because they don't get paid if their plane isn't in the air? So if this sounds like it might be of some interest to you, you can learn more about the campaign at unpaidworkwon'tfly.ca. That's unpaidworkwon'tfly, all one word, .ca. And that is it for this edition of the Guelph Politicast. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast is usually recorded at CFRU, Guelph Campus and Community Radio, and to learn more about CFRU, go to CFRU.ca. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify, and when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you'll get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter and at Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me personally at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram or send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. If you would like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can get all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And finally, for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca where we will have a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you sometime next week. And until then... We will see you next time.